All right. Well, let's uh, let's briefly pray together before we we get into it here. God, we're thankful for just another opportunity to look at these things. We pray that you would help us examine our own hearts, uh, that we would really come to own the difference between understanding peacemaking or and actually doing it. <laughs> um, understanding what idols of the heart are and actually identifying them. Uh, understanding um, our own sin and actually doing something about it. And so um, we pray for for grace because those things are hard and we need your spirit to do those things. But be with us as part of a contributing cause to that end um, over the next few minutes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, all right. So last time, if you'll recall, we finished up the the first step of what I would consider biblical conflict resolution, and that is just resetting priorities and perspectives. Okay, we talked about um, a vertical perspective. I want to glorify God, chiefly teased out in a horizontal perspective. I want to love this other person well, and then I want to have proper perspective of the gospel. I want to have proper perspective of um, eternity. How much does this actually matter in the grand scheme of things? And when we reset our priorities and our perspectives, conflict resolution goes, even when it's challenging, it goes much better than it otherwise otherwise would. And so what I want to do today is continue on in the start with yourself. Okay, that's where we got into, if I remember correctly, at the end of our time together last time, we're going to start with ourself. We're going to start with owning our own sin, no matter if it's the minority piece of the sin in the larger equation, because we're already we're always responsible for our own sin, period, end of story. But then we want to we want to focus a little bit more uh, on do a deeper dive into the heart here, and I'm going to open up a couple of scriptures uh, for us. James four one. We already uh, have already we've already mentioned this multiple times. It's an important passage. Oh, I'm going the wrong way in my Bible. James four one here and two really. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. There's a war going on. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. So every day I wake up, there's a battle for my heart. Galatians 5 is going to tell us the same thing. If you flip over to Galatians 5, 17, this is one of those great passages just to be familiar with. So Paul's exhorting them to walk by the Spirit so we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are set against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Okay? So it's the idea of like, okay, I want to serve God, but I also don't want to serve God. Like, I want to do the right thing, but I'd really like to not do the right thing. I would like to do this, but I also truly am drawn towards this option. There is a, there's a battle. The question is, which, is, which one is going to win out on a daily basis? Which one is going to win out on a daily basis? And certainly, conflict allows us opportunity to say, which ones end up winning out in my heart? Which ones end up winning? What is an idol? What is a, a, an idol? Um, an idol, we'll go back to that second one. I know that's a big block of text, but I put it out there intentionally like this. An idol is something besides God whose worth and value, at least in our estimation, commands our desires and behaviors and our pursuits. Remember that worship comes from the old English worthship. In idolatry, other desires and pursuits functionally rule our hearts instead of God. And his statutes, which says statues, whoops, he doesn't have statues, 
but he does have statutes, if you put a T in there, because we find them more worthy and desire them more. So it's the idea that like, yeah, it's not idol worship like you might see if you go to Cambodia, for example, something like that. The vast majority of us do not have statues or anything in our home, but we have a different kind of idolatry. We, are, we tend to serve different masters besides God. We want one very important passage here is Psalm 115. In fact, so much so that a guy named Greg Beal wrote a whole book um, based on the principle here. And I want to just read 1 through 8 for you. Do I have these? Uh, yeah. 1 through 8. I want you to listen to the idolatry language here, kind of how, how this works. And then we're going to go to, can you really jump from that to an idol of the heart? John Calvin famously said our hearts are idol factories. Is that a theological extrapolation or is there something a little bit more textual that we can get to? That's what we're going to go to next. So Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Just listen to this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they make not a sound in their throat. Verse 8, critically, those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Subtitle of Greg Beale's book is, We Become What We Worship. You worship nothing, what do you come to? Nothing. And we all tend to worship these little nothings. We all, uh, uh, and we're, we're going to pause and have a, a little discussion question. I'm going to ask what are some of the nothings that we tend to worship that seem so prominent. But I want to show you this. This is not a theological extrapolation. Ephesians chapter 5 uh, if, you, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you're going to see something that is very interesting. Um, so he's talking about sexual Im- immorality, and then he's going to switch to covetousness, uh, which you remember is a different commandment even in the Ten Commandments as it's, um, uh, as it's given. You've got the, there's the prohibition against images, and then you have, at least in the Decalogue as it lays it out, a prohibition against covetousness. But I want you to look at this in verse 5 of Ephesians 5. Paul writes this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Isn't that interesting? Wait a second. Isn't isn't coveting one thing and idolatry another thing? Well, Paul says, someone who is covetous, that is, namely, That is to say, an idolater. What is covetousness? I want this thing. I want more. It's a deep-seated greed. It's a desire, strong desire for something, and usually a desire for something that someone else has. Not just, oh, I'd really like to have a million dollars. It's no, I'm going to have something, and and that person is not going to have it. We're going to have a zero-sum game where I get what that person has. Covetousness, particularly in the case of do not covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, that's not like a, it's not saying I want, we want to have like a sharing game here. It's like, no, I want that for myself. And that's what David do, goes and does with Bathsheba and then sends Uriah off to death. Okay? Colossians 3 5 is the last one uh, because I, I don't want you to think I'm just making this stuff up. You don't want to put your trust in a man, you put your trust in the Bible. 
And Colossians. Colossians 3, you're going to see something similar. Put to death, therefore, Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, excuse me. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then we get a list. Sexual immorality, which is almost always at the top of these lists, by the way, which should tell us something. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Which is idolatry. That's what he says. So clearly, there's a category for idolatry that is not just a figure sitting on your shelf, right? There is a category for idolatry that is broader than an, than an image, okay? And so that's what I want to suggest is oftentimes what we do business with in our heart and these desires that war uh, within us. We functionally, we of course would never say we worship someone other uh, than God, but functionally our desires maybe even in particular moments or maybe maybe as a momentary desire or maybe just as a season of life or a lifestyle there's something that really really excites my soul that I yearn for that I long for that I wait to get to that really captures my affections and it isn't God and I would suggest that that kind of thing that I desperately desire that I desperately want that that is going to be uh, some form of idolatry, idolatry uh, of the heart. I'm functionally worshiping something else. Or remember from the old English, worship. I'm assigning worth to fill in the blank that I am looking to obtain. There's a certain worth I'm putting on that, and I'm willing to run. I'm willing to do whatever I can uh, to get it. And it functionally controls me, even if I profess to follow uh, Lord Jesus Christ, which on a regular basis, perhaps I do. So let me ask you this. So let's take this out of kind of the, so I've tried to paint a little small, very, very short biblical theology of idolatry and, and get to the desires of the heart that are in conflict, okay? We're going to have a battle every day for what we're going to worship, what master we're going to serve. So here's a question. What idols are we most prone to end up worshiping, either in small moments or lifestyle patterns? What do you think? I want to get some practical examples out there. What are some examples in everyday life and conversation, either in small moments or in lifestyle patterns of functional idolatry? Yeah, Jesse. Some people want to, yeah, okay. So, so let's say, yeah, so say money. Maybe I'm running after money. Maybe I'm just, maybe that's what my God is. In fact, I worked for a supervisor that shamelessly confessed I have a whole, I have a money-shaped hole in me. We've got to get in the, oh, now I'm in the low six figures. Well, I've got to get to the mid six figures. I mean, yeah, n never enough. You know, of course, that's the old joke. How much is, is enough for a millionaire, a billionaire, more? Okay. I run after money. Money's the scoreboard. Money shows me how successful I am. Money shows me how I'm crushing things and everyone else is lagging behind me. It's a concrete way to make myself feel better. It's worth. I, I find my worth in this. Certainly uh, one of the most prominent idols given in the new Testament, which is why there are so many warnings against money. Not, well, not against money, but money uh, warnings against pursuing money the wrong way in the New Testament. In fact, there, are, there, are, there, there might be more warning. That might be the most warned against thing, the most dangerous thing as it's painted in the New Testament, money. And ever, anyone who's ever gotten a lot of money in one check, or I don't mean be a millionaire. I, I doubt anyone's multimillionaire in here. But if you are, good for you. Steward it well. It's great. I'm not shaming you. I'm just saying there is something, there is some kind of intoxicating feeling about having a large chunk of money, all right? Some way or another, oh, man, what, what if we could double this? Oh, what if? 
what if instead of making my, my 70K, I can make 170K? What do I have to do to make that happen? Well, you're going to have to you know, work 70 hours a week. It's worth it. What? Okay. Money can start functionally being the God you run after. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And it usually hides two ways. The pursuit of money usually hides two ways. Number one, just being a good steward, just trying to steward my, my gifts and just trying to steward my money and my investments well. And that stewardship, that sounds good. Who doesn't want to be a good steward? So remember, sin, as we talked about it many times, is always on a rebranding mission. It's always trying to get into smuggled cargo that have really good things on the outside of the box and ruin that, all right? Because it knows if it can get in there, it's not going to get inspected. It's not going to be accountable. So it wants to rebrand. That's certainly one. Pursuit of wealth can rebrand as I'm just being wise and trying to be a good steward. The other one is, and this is more of the middle class version of running after wealth, is I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to be rich. Trust me, I don't need a $10 million. I just want to be comfortable. Now, is there anything wrong with a desire to be comfortable? Absolutely not. Just like any of these things aren't necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to have $10 million either. But all of a sudden, that desire to be comfortable can come to control you. And, um, and you can say, well, I'm just, we're just trying to be comfortable. It doesn't sound materialistic, but maybe in your case, it, it maybe not, I don't mean your case personally. Maybe in someone in particular case, that's exactly what it is. It's wrapped up in different language, but the bubble wrap doesn't matter. It still is a pursuit of money. Maybe less money, but you're still trying to move the needle so you can have materially certain things that you would like. Okay? Any, what other, so moving away from money, what, uh, what other functional idols, either in, a, in small moments or lifestyle patterns, do we end up serving? What do you think? Okay, tell me about that. Relationships was, was the was the call out there. Tell me about. Okay, great, great. Relationships, another great candidate. So someone give me an example of how you might functionally worship a or your relationship. Yes, sir, right here. Okay, sexual immorality. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my relationship ends up, uh, I, I am so controlled by it, it ends up uh, corrupting my purity. Um, uh, and, and of course, it's probably not a good relationship to begin with, but yes. What else? How else could a relationship uh, be a functional idol? Even family. Yeah, even family. So how, tell me about that. How could family be, how could a relationship within a family be a functional idol? Yes, 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 yes. So Kevin DeYoung wrote an article that made everyone mad called The Last Idol in the Church, The, the Family. The Idol of the Family. Family time. Um, 
And uh, of course, he's not against family time, obviously, or anything like that. But we talked, he talked about how that's an easy one that sneaks into the church, the relationships within the family. My family, my family, almost like this romanticized thing. And sometimes family time is family time. Sometimes people are like, well, we're going to have family time. You go, you know, you, if you were a fly on the wall, you would see as one kid isn't even there. Someone's watching electronics. Someone else is working out in the yard. That's not family time. It's just people at the same house together. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, which is okay, which is great. Maybe you just say, oh, we want to be home together. But this idea that there's, um, that, that, that a particular relationship in my family or just the pursuit of, I want to be seen as someone who has this perfect family. I want to be perceived a certain way. I want to be the person who has the family. You know, oh, this family. My kids this way. My wife or husband this way. And we are, we are seen when we walk into church as a solid family. Oh. Okay? Certainly. And again, I want you to just, I want to continue to point this out so no one feels bad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with any of these. That's the whole trickiness of it, right? It's all, all these things are good things until they become these functional gods. So I hope no one here is saying, yeah, I don't care at all about my family. I don't have to worry about that one. You know, that's not what I'm saying. All right. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying any good thing can slip into these categories very easily. Okay. What else? Any other ones that you can think of? Kind of the functional. Uh, yeah. Noah. Okay, yeah, so I am more driven and I desire to identify philosophically, politically, socially with a particular set of people or a particular set of views, and I want to be perceived a certain way. I don't want to be perceived as an ignoramus. I don't want to be perceived as some kind of crazy this person over here. Um, but, but yeah, so I end up spending most of my time and thinking about and my heart is drawn to these things functionally more than it really is. God is an appendix to my day. These things really are what I get actually excited about. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And, of course, on social media, which is another thing that can be used for good, good purposes and bad purposes, but um, even the idea of craving people's likes or their public adulation of you. But what it is is I want to get many worshipped for my profound thought what about the excellent picture I posted? I want people to affirm, yes, you. And it is a, I'm, and so you can subtly start to crave affirmation and suddenly start to crave this pathetic, watered-down version of glory because people are looking at what you contribute because, oh, that is, that is worthy right there. You're like, yes, oh, it feels so good. Someone tell me I'm worthy. Okay? Any other ones? Yeah, Asher. And then we'll go Janetta. I saw you, Janetta. He was just, he beat you there. What is it, bud? You want me to come back to you? Yes. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, Janetta. Looks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. My appearance, I want to appear beautiful. Men, it's just a different story. I mean, it's like, no, I've got to have the big muscles. i got to take my creatine, my protein shake, man. What are you bench press? Oh, you need to get up. You need to work a little harder, man. You need to be like Rob Jones. No one puts up weight like Rob Jones, man. I'll tell you what, don't run into that man. But um, no, so it's certainly, yeah. But again, and, and part of that still, isn't that just another version of perception though? I want to be perceived a certain way. I want to be perceived a certain kind of appearance, all right? 
this person's an attractive uh, person. This person looks like a fit person or they have it together or they did their makeup well or whatever the case may be and something that is good and fine because of what's the opposite. Again, I'm not saying anyone should desire. I don't even care how I look. I don't care what I, I don't. No, it's something that goes up too high. It's, it, it takes an inordinate place in our desire structure. All right, maybe one more example of a functional uh, uh, idol. Asher, yeah. They're coveting that? Yeah, yeah, really good. So I look over the fence, especially on social media, this happens. Or maybe I just, you know, maybe in the, in the course of my community group or whatever. And, um, you know, and, I, and, and things look so good. The grass looks so green on the other side with that family. You know, I'm a disgruntled wife or I'm a disgruntled husband. I'm saying, oh, man, uh, look at that marriage. Oh, man, I wonder what, wonder what things look like behind closed doors there. But it's a lot better than my picture. Oh, look at these kids. They're doing this. Oh, look, they're going to Cabo San Lucas because they're, they're he'll look, he, he's lead, after a 45-minute jog, he's leading a family devotion. This is everything I've wanted. Or, oh, this is this woman who's doing this and that. And so, was, was that, that must have been that must have been funny, I guess. But uh, there's these idyllic idyllic pictures that you can get. You look in, you draw these extrapolations, right? Um, and all those are good things, by the way. There's nothing wrong with 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 any of that. But you can look over and you can say, oh, I wish I, I'm you're, I'm craving after this life that I don't actually have. I see a, I see small snippets of it over here, um, and, and and I crave that. So what do I have to do to get there? Do I need to coach up my family? What do I need to do? And that becomes my operating, yeah, modus operandi. Okay, any other comments on that? We're going to move on to how to identify some of those idols. Any other comments about the functional idols? Okay. Oh, by the way, let me just name one that didn't get named. Um, I would say that in particular seasons of life, you could just have an idol of uh, wanting peace and quiet. Especially if you have little kids always, just, always destroying your house and screaming all the time. Just like, just shut up. That is, all I want is just some peace quiet in a house that isn't a disaster i don't care what you have to do just and all of a sudden that ends up being um in small like that's not a usually a lifestyle pattern but it's certain in small moments like the only thing i care about is x y and z these things are going to happen so what do i have to do to make it work okay all right so how do we identify uh these idols um and these are just questions that i want everyone to ask themselves in sober-minded self-reflection uh, this is not to be. This is not to uh, be mistaken for uh, some kind of specific, rigid, wooden identifier. These are just kind of wind flags. Good questions to ask yourself. I found myself asking myself these things as I prepared this week, and, and it's always a sobering experience. First question: Identify my idol. Say I don't know what mine tend to be. What do you fear the most? Looking at your fears is a great way to identify idols. Look at your fear, and then what's the opposite of that? Is the idol. What do you tend to worry about the most in life? Okay, again, I'm not making wooden correlations. Everyone has fears. That doesn't necessarily mean the opposite is your idol. But do I find myself consumed with a certain fear or a certain worry of something occurring or me losing something that I am so commanded by that it ends up functionally ruling my heart? Uh, what For what would you sacrifice the most time, energy, and resources to achieve? There might be a potential identifier of something that could at least be, you know, that that could at least creep into 
uh, being an idol. And I should say that sometimes you can healthily enjoy something, and then sometimes it, it, gets, it moves into idol status, and then sometimes it moves back down into healthy enjoyment status when you check your own heart. So it's not like some of these things are in wooden categories because your desires aren't in wooden categories. Did you have a question? Oh, sorry. For what would you consider sinning to obtain or avoid? Stretching the truth counts. Just think about a situation. What might you consider sinning to obtain or avoid and say, oh, well, God will forgive me. I want this thing so bad. Okay. What must you have or who must you be to feel valuable, important, or significant? What must you have or who must you be to feel valuable, important, or significant? Do you need people to think that you are a beautiful woman or a good-looking fellow? Do you need people to think that you are super intellectually sharp? You want to make sure, hey, for whatever else, at least you're a really smart person. You want everyone to know that. Does that help you? So maybe you have an idol of the intellect. Um, maybe you just, you just the, just the idea of the praise of man, I want someone to think that I'm a super Christian, okay? I want some, and it can be, yeah, it, it, can, be, it can be so many different things. But what, what do you think you must have to feel valuable, important, or significant? What truths, this is an interesting, difficult one, what truths would be the most difficult to accept about yourself? Okay? Yes? Mm, yes. People who are self-absorbed. Yeah, I, I've, yes, I've certainly have. Witnessed that. I probably thought that myself embarrassingly a couple of times and it could not be further from the truth. But certainly there's people who, who just have a very puffed up understanding of who they are and they're seeking craving and affirmation uh, from other people. Okay. Um, yeah. So what truths would be the most difficult to accept about yourself? So if I said, hey, I'm looking at Ben. I'm not trying to call him Ben, Joanna, Jesse, Abiel. You know, if I'm honest, I have to say that fill in the blank. What, what would you hate to hear me say? And when I'm saying hate to hear you say, I mean, I don't, not something like, oh, you sinned or something, like something about you that perhaps is non, non-moral, right? Hopefully we'd all don't want to hear something like, I just don't think you're walking with Jesus. That would, that would be painful for everybody. I'm not talking about that. That's fine. You should, that should feel like a gut punch. Um, if you're not walking with Christ, someone points that out to you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, though. So we're talking about something else. Something about your lifestyle. Something about the way you look. Something about the way you act. Something about the way you talk. Something about the way you do things. Something about how you perceive. What truths must be the, the most difficult to accept um, about yourselves? Uh, and then finally, when you feel a deep need for practical comfort, what do you eagerly pursue? When you feel a deep need for practical comfort, what do you eagerly pursue? So to cap this off, if you're thinking, oh, here are the things I do. Those are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that these questions identify the areas, the crates that idols tend to hang out in. Not that the crates are wrong themselves. Everyone has fears. Everyone sacrifices time for a lot of things. Okay? But, but I'm telling you that these are the crates and the idols hang out in them. So examine these crates in your life to see if there are idols hiding in there. Getting a pass from customs, right? In the big box because it's under the, the straw. You dig up, dig up these crates and say, is there, shake, the, shake the hay around. Are there any idols hanging out in some of these areas? Okay, any questions about that? Any questions about that? 
This is a great exercise. This is a great exercise. What I would what I would do is again not say, well, here, okay, here's my sin, but identify what crates do my idols tend to hang out in? Because some of these, yeah, what are the crates that my idols tend to hang out in? And then how do I know? How do I know when it's going from something that I just enjoy or something that's a healthy desire to something that rules my heart? Okay, that is going to be a huge part of starting with yourself. So to bring it full circle to conflict resolution. Why is it that I was so upset and set off by what that person said? Like, why was I triggered in such a way by that? Was it just righteous anger because the glory of God was impugned? Or was it they, you know, them doing this or saying this, you know, clarified that I am this or suggested that I am this or why, why was that such a shot to my pride, for example? Why are my feelings so hurt by something that if you looked in on the outside, people would be like, that one's hard to hard to see. And there are complicated answers to that. But coming to conflict, it helps expose your idols. Maybe I crave respect. I will be respected in this house. All right. No one listens to me at work. No, one, but when I come home. I will be respected in this house. No one's going to disrespect me. Well, maybe you have an idol. So again, in conflict resolution, what is the conflict showing about what potential idols could be in those crates? Okay. Um, and let me just pause because we're about to move into uh, the thoughtfully engaged piece. Let me just pause to say that if we just stopped here and didn't learn anything more about the subject, if people could just do step one, reset perspective of my priorities, and step two, start with yourself, if we didn't talk about anything else, people would be a ton better at peacemaking than they already are. If, if everyone started their peacemaking by resetting perspective of my priorities and starting with themselves, even if we didn't say a single other thing about it, people's peacemaking would improve. Because it is so, so, so important. Because now all of a sudden I'm thoughtfully engaging with a very different disposition. I have a different perspective. I've, taught, I've looked at my own sin. I've done a little surgery on my own heart. And now I'm coming as, as, in a much more, hopefully, humble disposition to thoughtfully uh, thoughtfully engage, okay? And let me just say this. Um, one of the, how you do one and two affects how you do three. Can you imagine that, right? If you're about to engage, how I do step one and two, how I step my perspectives, reset perspectives, and how I uh, um, uh, examine my own heart and start with myself, that's going to meaningfully affect the nature of how I engage someone, third step. And everyone, a third step doesn't happen in isolation. It happens on the back of some kinds of feelings, some kinds of expectations, some kinds of something. And um, if you haven't reset and you're not in a proper space, you're going to go try to thoughtfully engage someone, and it's just going to be a, a, a disaster. Okay, You may end up causing more harm. All right, well, let's talk about thoughtfully engaging. This is one of my favorite charts, and everyone is going to do exactly what I say not to do, but that's okay because I didn't put it in. Uh, um, that come in one at a time because I was just too lazy. So I took a screenshot and the whole thing. So we're talking about um, confession and forgiveness here. Um, talking about engaging and, and what we have found, well, no, what I'm certain Stephen and Ben would say the same thing, but what I have found personally is that there's a lot of I'm sorry that passes for repentance. Okay? But I'm sorry is not repentance. Saying I'm sorry is not repentance. I can say I'm sorry for a lot of things that aren't repentance, right? Your grandmother died. I'm so sorry. 
hey, uh, I got left off that text message. Whoops, a mistake. I'm so sorry. I'm not repenting of sin there. I really am saying I'm so sorry. Or how about this? This could have been done better. I'm so sorry. I didn't say that what I did was, was sinful, but in the future, could I do a better job? Sure. There's a lot of ways to say sorry can mean, and we're going to get to it. But sorry, saying I'm sorry itself is not repentance at all. Okay? In fact, the New Testament says there's kinds of sorrow that lead to death. Okay? There's a kind of sorrow that leads to death, but not a godly sorrow that leads to a cleansing shame that leads to repentance. All right, so let's talk about the differences briefly here uh, when I'm engaging. And we're going to talk about the other side of engaging here. We've got to talk about both sides of engaging. This one is uh, I'm, re- I'm repenting. I've come to realize sin. I'm coming to somebody. So I'm sorry expresses sorrow for a certain effect or result. I'm sorry this happened. Bummer. I wish another state of affairs would have obtained. I wish that something else would have happened. You know, the end result is something that I can express sorrow over. Okay. notice there's no ownership language there. You're saying I have a particular feeling because something happened. I have a particular feeling because something happened. I'm not saying it's my fault. I'm not saying uh, I'm going to do anything about it. Repentance expresses sorrow for one's behavior or actions. I'm not just sorry that you're sad. I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. No, I'm sorry that I was incredibly harsh and thoughtless when I said that about you. Um, because, and then we're going to move on, but repentance says, no, I'm, I'm sorry, not just for the effect. I'm not sorry that someone's feelings are hurt. I'm sorry because I'm, because I did something wrong. My behavior and actions, that's repentance. Sorry does not include ownership of sin or failure. Again, I already made that clear. Sorry does not necessarily mean um, I'm owning any sin or failure. And let me just pause and say, I'm sorry is all is very, very, commonly part of good confession and repentance. I'm not saying the phrase, I'm sorry, is bad. What, again, what's the opposite? Like, no, I'm not sorry. It's like, no. It's just more than that. It's not less. You certainly want to express sorrow over your sin. I'm so sorry. But it's, I'm so sorry because I've sinned against you in this particular way. And I'm taking ownership of that. It wasn't the circumstances' fault. It wasn't this is fault. Remember the but and ifs that ruin confessions? We already talked about that. I'm owning my sin. I'm sorry critically keeps the ball in the offender's court. Notice, I'm sorry is a mic drop. Sorry. Really, I'm really sorry. All right. Now it's time to get over it. Maybe you'll no. it's time to, it's time to get over it. I'm sorry. Leaves it's you, you you have the control there. Okay? Repentance and asking for forgiveness leaves the ball in the offended person's court. We well, I'm so sorry I've sinned in this way. You know, would you please forgive me? Now all of a sudden. It's out of your control. And people don't like to have things out of their control, which is why, as Jesse pointed out, I believe it was last week, that making amends is easier than asking for forgiveness. It's much easier to work yourself back into someone's favor. I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then if they don't forgive me by them, then that's their problem. After all that I've done to make up for this, they owe me their forgiveness. Making amends. So, so saying I'm sorry keeps the ball in my car, court. Asking for forgiveness leaves the ball in their court. And maybe they say, and they have, I've, multiple times in my life people said, I'm just not ready to do that. And you say, oh, I'm, okay, well, I'll follow back up. Yeah, I certainly want to honor and respect that. But you don't, have, you don't have control whether there's resolution or not if you ask forgiveness. You leave it in the court of the other person. And then finally, I'm sorry doesn't necessarily mean anything about the future. It might mean sorry, get over it, and just toughen up because this is the way it's going to be. 
People just apologize. It's just the way I am. Sorry. Well, that's not repentance. They're saying, sorry, if you don't like it, go kick rocks or go hang out somewhere else. I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm not going to change anything. And I'm sorry you don't like it. Really, I'm sorry, truly. But it's not tied to different future efforts and actions like repentance. And moving forward, I'm going to turn, which is repentance, right? I'm going to turn from this particular course of action and try to do this. Imagine, this is the example I always give, someone smacks you in the face and like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Boom! And then they smacked you in the face again. And then through tears, this person's crying. I'm so sorry. Boom! And they hit you again. How long would it be until you're like, you know what? The boohooing and the crying here um, doesn't, and the saying I'm sorry is not enough to convince me that you're actually repentant because you keep doing the exact same thing with no even effort to do anything different. I'm sorry too. I just got hit in the face three times. All right, but you can't. But you. But but I'm sorry again. It's the clearest example. That doesn't mean repentance. Repentance. Turning. I'm going to at least try. Hey, you know what? It may not be perfect, but in the future, I understand that when I say this, this affects you this way. And I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Um, I, I sinned and I was harsh. I was, I was short with you because what I wanted is control of the situation and I wanted control more than I wanted to love you well. It ruled my heart. I enforced control and, I, and it, I, it did it at your expense. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? Yes, excellent. Moving forward, what I would like to try to do is X, Y, and Z. Now, it takes some thoughtfulness to, do, to confess sin like that. It does. But the more reps you get in, um, the easier... Well, the easier. I'm not sure it gets easier, but but it, the, the the articulating it gets easier. Asking for forgiveness doesn't. So um, we're teaching our son and, and our our daughter to uh, uh, asking for forgiveness. And uh, so one of the things I've tried to model for my little kids is asking for forgiveness when nothing actually happened is wrong. So uh, I forgot to get Callie's um, pink cup the other day and put it on the table, and she said, "Daddy, you forgot my pink cup." I said, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? She said, yes, Daddy, I forgive you. Okay? What I'm doing there is I'm, tr I'm trying to train. I'm trying to train my children because my son said something very profound the other day because he's, he, he, he gets stuck on the I'm sorry's because he knows he gets to keep that in his court. Um, and I, and I talk, we, he, he disobeyed his teacher, and I sent him in there to apologize. And I said, you know how to apologize. You know what it, and he, we rehearsed it in the car. Well, he came back home, and I said, did you ask for forgiveness? He said, no. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I gave him a pat. I told him, good job. I was, I was proud a five-year-old went in there and asked his teacher. Uh, but, but, I was, but I was making this point, and this, listen to what he said. No truer words have been spoken. So did you ask forgiveness? He goes, Daddy, no, no one ever says that part. That's right. There's not a kid in that class who, who asks anyone to forgive. You know, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry. Sorry, Daddy. Sorry, this. And again, I'm not trying to be the vocabulary police, but it's the point. It is easy to say I'm sorry. It even saves optics for yourself to say I'm sorry. It makes you look not like a jerk, but that's not necessarily asking for forgiveness, and it's not necessarily repentance. Okay? Any questions about that? we got about five more minutes left. I think I can get through the rest of the material. Any questions about the difference between I'm sorry, by itself, merely I'm sorry, expressing sorrow, and 
confession, repentance, asking for forgiveness, and more to come on the details of those things. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, most of us have. I certainly wasn't taught um, that. But if you have, you know, that is something good to instill in, in children. It's just, um, you know, and again, your children will certainly, if they hang out with a bunch of kids, will say the same thing as my as my son. Daddy, no one says that part, meaning the will you forgive me part. They just say the I'm sorry part, which is true. But it's just easier. Trust me, it's easier for me to say I'm sorry, not take any uh, ownership and, oh, well, you need to have thicker skin. Oh, well, you need to fill in the blank. That's not repentance. And sometimes, again, there's a, there's, a, there's a place to express sorrow even when there's not sin. Someone got their feelings hurt because they didn't get invited to a baby shower. I'm so sorry. I had no desire to hurt your feelings. I'm so sorry. I'm not, asking, I'm not saying, oh, I, I sinned before God because of my invite list. You understand? I can still express sorrow that someone is hurting or someone feels bad without therefore implying that I have owning sin. That's the whole point of this. Okay? And sometimes you should express sorrow, even for things that are not um, explicitly sinful. All right. uh, So I've got the eight A's of confession and repentance. Let me just uh, work through this um, briefly. I won't get through all of them. In fact, let's just do the first four. Okay? What does this look like? This is not some rigid list. Do not be the person who, if you're doing this, goes through like some Spock-like machine and tries to go through each of these steps. This is a framework. I'm not saying, oh, you missed a step or something. This is how to think through something like confession and repentance. And again, I just copied and pasted the whole thing, so we'll just go through it quickly. Number one, address everyone involved. That Luke 19, 8 is, that is, the, uh, is the Zacchaeus reference where he pays back everyone uh, that he wrongs. Your confession should go as far as the offense. Now, let me say this. If you, have, let me ask you, if you sin in front of a bunch of people against your spouse or just somebody, maybe I'm up here and, I, and I'm, I'm a public speaking publicly, teaching, preaching, whatever, and I sin, that sin needs to be confessed in some manner or another um, in an in earshot of the people who witnessed it. Why? Because if not, you know what they think? Eh, that's just status quo for him. He's okay with that. He's okay with speaking to his wife that way or his children that way. Now, I don't necessarily mean there, – there are some times where you don't even know who was around. You, you snap at your children. Five people saw it. Oh, my goodness. Like, goodness gracious. They just screamed at their kid. I don't even know who was around. I'm not saying go on a hunt and take a church survey to figure out who to go say. That's not what I'm saying. Insofar as you have control, though, make sure that the people who witness your sin know that you're not okay with it. That's the, that's the purpose. And, of course, if you have sinned against multiple people, that's the Zacchaeus part, uh, you need to go make it right with multiple people and not just say, hey, tell John, tell John, I mean, I'm, you asked my forgiveness here, can you tell John and Susie the same thing? You just tell them that I'm asking for their forgiveness. That's not how it works. You need to address everyone involved. Second, you're going to avoid the, the ifs and buts. We already talked about this. That means I'm not confident I actually did anything wrong, and but shifts the blame to other people or circumstances, you know? And again, some of those ifs and buts are true. It probably is true. If you, if you didn't slap me in the face, I wouldn't have punched you in the face. Okay, probably true. Also, when it comes to confession, irrelevant. I understand that's a true conditional, but did you sin, yes or no? Okay, if I sin, I don't need to explain to that person why I sin in a way that makes it sound less serious than it actually is. One sin's enough to send me to hell, so I don't need to be making qualifications about it. I'm sorry for what I did, period. 
And I don't need to be expecting them to say anything. It's that old laying down at night, your wife or your husband's in bed with you, and you confess something, and it's like, okay. And you're sitting there going, like, you, got, you got anything to say? You know, don't, don't be that. Don't do that either. You're not, uh, you're not confessing something to try to elicit their confession. That's manipulative. I'm owning my sin because I hate sin, because I love righteousness. I'm more disturbed by my sin than the other person's sin. I'm more concerned about my holiness than, than, than their, whatever they're doing. I want to help them, but their sin is their problem. I'm, I'm concerned about my sin. If they're not going to confess any sin and I think they owe it to me, that's a different, you know, we'll, we, maybe we can deal with that. But, but we'll, oh, Asher, do you have a question, buddy? Okay. Admit specifically, we love to be vague about our, I'm so sorry about, about what happened. What, what, what is it that happened exactly? I'm sorry about what, about, uh, about what I said. I'm sorry about that thing I did. Sorry for last night. No, I'm really sorry for. It's like, no, no, no. Be specific. Be specific. I'm sorry for humiliating you. The honest truth is that you've been very successful and I crave your life. I wanted to bring you back down to earth and I said something I shouldn't have said to make myself feel better about standing next to you. I'm insecure. My pride took a shot. You were an easy fix in that moment. That's tough, isn't it? But it's the truth whether you want to tell that person or not. That kind of stuff happens all the time. What an opportunity to even minister to that person if you could, if, if you could, if you could dissect it and lay it out for them like that. Admit specifically. And then finally, acknowledge the hurt. Be the, don't be the person who says, yeah, it was a sin, but you need to get over it. Have tougher skin. Just say, I know, I, I, if someone is really, really hurting or really, really upset, um, you might think, and, and, well, this is person's out of proportion. But you can still acknowledge that because pain isn't true or false. Okay? Someone who's really, really upset when they shouldn't be and someone who's really, really upset when they should be are still equally upset. So you can still acknowledge, hey, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry that you're so upset. I see this is a big, really big deal. And I see that I've, my actions have, have caused hurt. And I want to I own up to that. So, All right, so that's the first part of the list. We're at two minutes over time. I apologize for that. want to get through that slide. Next time we'll come back, finish the other uh, half of that framework, and uh, we'll move forward. God, uh, we pray that we would be confessors, that we would be repenters, that we would be ask for forgiveness errors because you have called us to do those things and you have given all of us uh, those, those opportunities and those things in the person of Jesus Christ. Give us the courage and the boldness and the humility to do this well. In Jesus' name, amen.